0: Welcome to Policy Chats, the official podcast of the School of Public Policy at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Maddie Benting. Join me and my classmates as we learn about potential policy solutions for today's biggest societal challenges. Joining us today are Professor of Political Science, Jennifer Marola, and Political Science graduate students, Mai Wendo. And Sarah Hayes. My fellow classmate, Andrea Raya, and I chatted with them about why everyone who is eligible, no matter their age, gender, or ethnicity, should vote in this upcoming election. Dr. Marola, you are a professor of political science at the University of California, Riverside, and specialize in the study of political behavior. In recent years, Americans seem to lack trust in the media and the information, specifically they're getting about the government or politics. Do you believe this will impact some Americans' decision to vote in this upcoming election?
1: Um, That's a great question. And I do want to talk a little bit about that trend. Um, So we have been seeing this declining trend in trust in the media over time. Um, But one important thing to note is that it um, has been somewhat uneven um, across the partisan divide. Um, So Democrats have actually... Kind of maintain their level of trust of the media, but Republican trust of the media has declined over time. This certainly predates um, Donald Trump being in office, and what we've seen since Trump has been in office that actually Democrats have become more more trusting of the media. So now we have this kind of polarization um, in trust in the media between the two parties. Um, Now, of course, Republicans are trusting of some media outlets. So, for example, Fox News is an outlet that Republicans, you know, are more likely to trust. Um, So to get to your question about what are the implications for, you know, whether people will participate in elections, I think because we see this polarization, um, there will not be necessarily a strong relationship between trust in the media and engagement, um, because even though Republicans may not trust the media generally, um, they do trust, say, Fox News, um, and so then they'll still be more inclined to participate you know, prior to this period of polarization, it usually was the case that kind of people who had lower trust in the media, lower trust in political institutions, would be less likely to participate. But today, because the issue itself is actually quite polarized, um, it may not have as much of an impact on participation trends. At least the trends that we're seeing so far with early voting, um, we're really seeing record numbers of people even engaging in early voting this election cycle. So so I suspect engagement will be quite high this cycle um, in comparison even to the last uh, presidential election.
2: So this year, we are celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment to women the right to vote. Can you speak to why it is more important than ever for women to exercise their right to vote?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, thanks for bringing that up. Um, I, I can also make a plug maybe for uh, the class I'll be teaching, I think, in spring quarter on um, women in the American political process. Um, And in that class, we talk about um, some things about the status of women in American politics and society more generally. Um, And so even though women have certainly made a great deal of progress um, in the U.S. political system, we still, you know, are unequally paid. Um, And unequal pay is even greater for women of color. Um, There was a really interesting study done – on the status of women actually by the Center um, for Social Innovation um, that kind of outlines some of those trends. Um, we also know, and this is especially the case in the current you know, climate, that women face a heavier care burden, right, both with respect to children, watching elders. And this has been, of course, exacerbated during the pandemic. Um, women are, of course, underrepresented. Um, we've made great, you know, there are great gains made, especially in 2018. Um, But we still remain underrepresented in most political institutions. Um, Women are also more likely to be victims of sexual harassment and assault. And so even though there's been a lot of progress, there's still much more work to be done. Um, And so women who really care about these issues, it's really important to become involved, um, to vote, to show up, to engage in your communities, um, to try to address some of those areas where women still have, you know, a great deal of progress to make you know, the really interesting thing is when women make up a greater percentage of bodies, the culture, right, of those institutions changes and in ways that really help the advancement of not just women, but certainly other communities that are underrepresented, right, in the academy and government. And so it is really important for people to get involved. Um, I know this, well, this podcast will be aired much later, but there's this wonderful conference happening at UCR, Persist, Um, The Women's Political Engagement Conference that really does aim to try to get, you know, women, both young women, but also women in the, you know, broader community more engaged in politics and figuring out ways to do that and to find mentors to, right, help them along through that process.
0: I know both campaigns have been um, targeting, may not be the correct word, but aiming for the suburban, mother, worker, housewife, uh, female population. I know there have been ads targeted towards them. Even in debates, it's brought up a lot. Um, Can you speak to what does that mean? And I think that alone proves their vote is important um, if both campaigns are actively trying to earn that vote.
1: Yes. And women, um, you know, when we look at some media coverage, right, we know that there's often this gender gap where women are more supportive of the Democratic Party compared to the Republican Party. But suburban women um, tend to be a little more on the fence. um, And part of that is that uh, many suburban women, of course, not all, um, tend to be white women. And and white women, on average, have actually voted for Republicans more than Democrats over most of U.S., kind of modern U.S. history. Um, And so they tend to be swing voters, though. And so, you know, these are soccer moms in some elections, right? They'll be referred to suburban women, soccer moms. Um, after 9-11, they were security moms. Um, and so they're often, in, in some respects, a bellwether of how the election's going to go because, you know, they're paying attention to the current moment, maybe not as directly connected, you know, some certainly are to political parties, but they maybe kind of could go either way in a given election context. And so, they are often, you know, a group that is targeted. Um, and this has been happening for you know, many election cycles, even if the labels attached <laughs> are different in any given cycle. Um, it's kind of that same demographic um, that tends to be women living in these suburban areas um, predominantly tend to be white women who may sometimes vote Republican, but then sometimes vote Democratic.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. We greatly appreciate it. Um, And I hope every woman out there who is eligible does exercise the right to vote um, because it's an election season, not day. So they do have until November 3rd.
1: Exactly. And thanks to you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. Experts
0: in public health, racial equity, and immigration talk about the 2020 election and its implications on November 13th at 2 p.m. Learn more about this special post-election event hosted by the UCR School of Public Policy at spp.ucr.edu. You can also find the RSVP link in our show notes. My, you are currently a PhD student in political science at the University of California, Riverside. And you work as a researcher for AAPI data in the Center for Social Innovation. You previously also worked at Courage California, a grassroots advocacy organization based in California. You have experience in campaign communication as well as field organizing. Due to COVID-19, many traditional campaign strategies are not possible this year. Therefore, candidates are relying on virtual platforms rather than the typical massive in-person rallies, town halls, et cetera, it's looking different. Uh, Do you think communicating this way um, in campaigns is just as effective?
3: So it's been really hard, right? Um, And I don't know if we can 100% replicate what we know to be as effective, right? In terms of, you know, in-person, door to door, going door to door, um, doing rallies and whatnot, however, Um, just because we can't do some of this in-person stuff doesn't mean that we can't also try and communicate with people, right? And so we've decreased, or in most cases, just completely thrown out things like going door to door, but then in the place of that, we've drastically increased things like text banking, phone banking, right? Things like doing a lit drop, so dropping pieces of campaign literature at people's doors and not knocking on the doors. And so there are these other things that we normally do that instead of just sort of taking them as maybe, you know, 30%, 40% of what we're doing, now it's taking up the majority of what we're doing.
0: Amazing, and for those who may not know, could you maybe go into more detail of what phone banking is, what text banking is, um, and how it, why it's beneficial, and why they're choosing to go that route?
3: Yeah, so basically phone banking is volunteers or sometimes paid um, callers who are calling voters and text banking is the same thing just with texting. So if you've gotten a text on your phone about the election or, you know, a phone call asking, will you support candidate X? That's a volunteer either doing phone banking or text banking.
0: Is there research done that this is effective? Do many, do many people pick up their phone? What, you know, when they get that unknown number that they don't recognize, um, Is there a lot of interaction, or would you say it's just good um, to directly reach out to the voters, even if they don't necessarily respond or pick up their
3: phone? So, out of all the options that we have, right? So, not in addition to phone banking and text banking, uh, you know, thinking about yard signs or um, rallies and whatnot, out of all of the array of tools, text banking and phone banking and canvassing, of course, uh, knocking on doors is. The most effective way to reach voters so even though the response rate in terms of people picking up their phone or replying to a text message is a little low. Out of all the options that we have right now, they are the ones that we know to be the most effective direct voter contact is the most effective way to get people to vote. Um, so even though the yard signs are fun and the rallies are fun and the, the you know waving signs on the sidewalk is, is great. Um, in terms of the time that you invest into them right and, and the money that you invest into them the text banking and phone banking are the most cost-effective and time-effective.
2: So due to the campaign reliance on social media, do you believe that we will see a higher percentage of young voters participate in this year's election?
3: I think a lot of people are anticipating higher voter turnout among young people. Um, However, what we see from the early returns is that not as much as we might have thought. Um, but that's specifically for vote by mail, right? And we know that younger people tend to go to the polls, right go to the vote centers or or the polling location right closer to election day um, or on election day, right And so um, I guess we'll we'll just have to wait and see what the totals come into. Um, but right now, uh, California's ballots are starting to come in and anyone can go onto the pDI ballot tracker and look at um, look at those returns and, Right now uh, the 18 to 35 category is still um, below everyone else in terms of a share of the amount of that group that are turning in their ballots early.
2: Thinking of the times right now, we've seen lots of violence yet resilience. Do you think these are some aspects or factors that young voters will take into account to push them to
3: vote? Yeah, I think young voters are, are or at least some people are energized right now um, now the, the trouble is translating that energy into casting their ballot, right? Um, and so I know like all those campaign ads that are going out, that some of these are amazing, right? These uh, really like, powerful ads that are trying to get young people to vote. Um, and hopefully they do show up when it comes to election day uh, because even though you know, like in California, everyone's been issued a vote by mail ballot, but we still don't see, we're still at 30, less than 30% total returned. Uh, right, and with just um, less than two weeks ago, so hopefully people show up, and particularly young people, um, right, who maybe they're uh, they have school, right, or are working, right, and they just haven't had a chance. They feel, maybe they've even built it out, but haven't had a chance to just take it out to the mailbox yet. And so hopefully they do.
0: With your background and experience in field organizing and campaign communications, I, I'd love to touch on social media a little bit more. And there's Instagram, Facebook. TikTok on YouTube. I'm seeing ads. I mean, I feel like it's everywhere. Um, and I think that's great. And I think, um, again, it's just that constant reminder, especially to um, the younger generation, which is who they tend to be on social media often. So what's your experience with social media and using that as a form of communication with campaigns?
3: Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think there's a couple of, I guess, issues that I would point out. Um, so social media is obviously great. It's very powerful, right? You can also do things like micro-targeting, right? So target very specific groups of people and very specific people. Um, however, it also means that you have to have people who know what they're doing. Right. So if you have a candidate that has a great platform, right, that has an otherwise strong campaign, right? And but they're investing extra money into digital and whoever is doing that, like that investment and spending that money doesn't know what they're doing, right? Then that money is going out the window. Right. Um, And it means that they're not actually reaching their voters. Um, For example, uh, in, so I'm from Santa Clarita, right? And sometimes people in one side of the city who are in one water district uh, will get ads for um, a candidate that is actually running in a district that's just a couple of streets away, right? Um, And so things like that, right, are are really, I guess, like, those are just examples of where people, I think, need to be careful, right? When, When we talk about social media and using social media that you have to be able to have people who know what they're doing with social media to get people not just out to vote, but also the information that they need to vote, right? Whether it's candidate ads or, you know, guides to propositions or whatnot. Um, If that, the correct information is not getting to the correct people, then that doesn't really help in terms of getting them to vote. Yes, it's a great
0: responsibility how you go about um, communicating with your constituents um, because you want them to get your information if you're a candidate or if you're backing one side of a proposition. But I think um, in this day and age, using technology uh, to our benefit to try and, you know, there's uh, cons to it as well. But I think just trying to get as much information to the people as possible is really, really wonderful.
3: And one of the things I'll point to on those ads is that like in California specifically, you'll see that like bottom third of the screen, right, has the disclosure right, of who pays for those ads. And that's very recent. Um, I was very lucky to intern for the California Clean Money campaign when we were working to get that passed. Um, and so that's not like that in other states, right? The disclosures are not as strong or even um, not even there right? As, as much in some other states. So yeah. we're very lucky to have laws like that.
0: Oh my goodness, I did not know that. Thank you. And yeah, I think it's very important um, to say this ad was paid by, and maybe part of your research is looking up that group or that individual who is, who is paying for that ad. I think it's also important to realize where you live dictates what you see and what they put out. Um, you know, if your region is known to be red or blue, you might be seeing one side of the aisle or very little, but maybe if you're in a purple area or a swing state, they are purposely putting money into you um, and your area um, to to inform you and persuade you. So I think it's very interesting how it all goes down. Um, I think it's very impressive your background in campaigning and and organizing and it's so important, so I just want to thank you for all the work you've done. um, Around elections and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us it's been very, very interesting and engaging um, and I want to um, encourage all of our listeners, but especially uh, those in, this, in the college age range um, from 18 to 27 um, to get out there and vote, that your your vote counts. So, Maya, I want to thank you so, so much for joining us. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Yeah, of course.
3: Thanks for having me.
4: Social injustice, health disparities, climate change. Are you interested in solving pressing challenges like these currently facing our region and the world? Then consider joining the next cohort of future policy leaders like me by applying for the UCR Master of Public Policy program. Learn more at mpp.ucr.edu. You can also find the link in our show notes.
0: So, Sarah, you are currently a second year graduate student in the Political Science Department at the University of California, Riverside, with a focus in Black and Electoral American politics. You previously worked as an electoral organizer for the California Democratic Party and participated in many political activities such as organizing neighborhoods, holding town halls, and policy advising. Very impressive. Can you speak to the importance of the Black vote in this election?
4: Yeah, um, thank you so much for the introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I can absolutely speak to it. Um, I had a really fantastic time um, as being chair of the California Young Black Democrat, but now it's headed by uh, Devin Murphy, who is a really, really phenomenal um, person. So yeah, speaking to uh, the Black vote in this election and talking about the importance of the Black vote, uh, what we know is that the Black vote is just as important as it is in any other election. Um, but what we have seen, though, is a lot of ramped up attention surrounding um, Black politics, but also Black voting as well. And this is a good thing. I mean, Black uh, voters have traditionally uh, maintained a strong preference for the Democratic Party, and they've remained one of their highest uh, groups to turn out. And what we've seen actually in this election, Pew Research has pointed out that one in three Black voters actually live in battleground states. Um, When we talk about this election in particular, and we think about um, voting suppression efforts, I I think that that has grabbed a lot of of, of attention in the news media. Uh, This is important because while strides has been made to tackle voter suppression, there are still active in this election um, for more explicit measures like voter id laws um to more implicit things that are happening such as uh excessively long lines when it comes to uh, voting we have seen that uh, voter suppression has really been rooted in suppressing black votes Um, and that's for a particular reason because um, when black people do come out to vote they essentially do end up voting um, with the democratic party Um, But I think just going back again to this this election, um, black voting and I think what has been highlighted in the time that we are in now is that black mobilization and efforts of organizing while they have been here for decades, um, they have absolutely played a crucial and central role in um, dominating what I think is taking a critical look at our criminal justice system. Um, So black really been um, putting in sustained efforts to keeping that conversation going, um, but also too um, has played a crucial role in shifting public attitudes when it comes to a lot of these conversations. the fact that we have so much um, high visibility for a movement of Black Lives, uh, but also to their uh, specific policy objectives is something that is very, very um, particular to 2020 that has really brought out to what has made like the Black vote such a crucial element for this election.
2: The Black, Lives Matter movement calls for criminal justice reform, as you had mentioned, health education and economic disparities exacerbated due to COVID-19, all the pressing issues society is currently facing. What can politicians put on their agenda that would aid the Black community, in your opinion?
4: Yeah, definitely. That's a really great question. Um, And I think it's important to, to place this into context. Um, when we talk about um, certain things that need to be on the agenda or certain um, policy initiatives we've seen highlighted uh, out in the public, that really what we're starting to see is this crucial um, but central call for reform in our criminal justice systems, as you mentioned, in our health systems, education systems, and also addressing economic equity Um, But I think that this all kind of gets at pointing to racism and, by and large, uh, gender and class that have systematically created the disparities that we see in these institutions. Um, While Black Lives Matter has definitely acknowledged uh, racism that happens at the individual level, um, that happens in between people, I think, by and large, what we've seen um, in this round is a much more uh, pointed uh, attention to institutions and systems and how systematic racism really, really uh, bleeds throughout a lot of these outcomes that we measure. And so, while I don't think that um, I can speak to all Black voters, because it's important to recognize that uh, Black voters and Black voting agenda is not a a monolith, and there are a lot of diverse and complex issues within Black voting. I think at its core, there has been this kind of unified call that if we are going to be addressing systematic failure, um, our policies need to match that as well and be, um, systematic policy solutions. Um, and also to, um, ensuring that, that, uh, policymakers that elected officials are attuned into uh, the Black voters that they actually do represent, um, making sure that they are being uh, accountable to them, uh, that these efforts and this work doesn't just stop after the election, that they are continued and sustained and really go beyond um, just party politics. And it, and I always say this because I think it it's important because there is like, a narrative that like the movement for Black Lives or the Black Lives Matter movement was very organic and that it like naturally kind of arose from the situation. But I think it it's too also important to tell the other side of the story is that the movement for Black Lives has been a movement that has been um, organizing for years on end um, since uh, 2012, 2013. Um, so they... And that is just like the present of, of the movement for Black Lives. There's other uh, social movements that came before then. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it, it, it's important to to get at that this work is it's critical, um, but it's also strategic as well. Protest politics has always been uh, the center of pushing the narrative for a lot of these policy solutions to even make it... Um, to more of a conventional or normative uh, a way of us looking at um, certain things like defund police or universal basic income, it really comes from um, protesters and mobilizers really opening up that space and really imagining a lot of these things becoming actually uh, uh, living, breathing like policy actions
0: Sarah, thank you so, so so much. For joining us we had an absolute pleasure speaking with you um, and just thank you for taking the time thank you so much um, I really appreciate it you all uh, having me for this session it was great policy chats is a production of the UC Riverside School of Public Policy our theme music was composed by C Codain
1: I'm Maddie Bunting till next time